Welcome to Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Eric Yonash for an update on new research in RCC. And to begin, he commented on a critical issue he addressed in an education session at the last ASCO meeting, namely the current role of nephrectomy in management of metastatic renal cell cancer, a question that was addressed in randomized clinical trials reported almost 10 years ago in the interferon era that demonstrated an advantage to immediate versus delayed nephrectomy. Dr. Yonash commented on his own research evaluating neoadjuvant treatment in this setting. We've been very interested from a scientific perspective in analyzing and assessing whether or not pretreatment with anti-angiogenesis agents is beneficial for people who come in with an asymptomatic primary tumor and metastases. It's still a research question. We don't have the mature phase 3 data that tell us what exactly we need to do. So we have to go back to the data that we have acquired from the interferon era. And so to quickly summarize the key questions, question number one, should we be performing nephrectomy in individuals who present with a primary in place and have metastases? If you look at the eligibility criteria for the interferon trials that were published in 2001, those people had good performance status, did not have too many sites of metastatic disease, and had a resectable primary tumor. I still think that off of a clinical trial, these people should have a nephrectomy first and then undergo systemic therapy. That may change when we perform or complete the studies that are being done in Europe, which are asking the question of whether or not nephrectomy should be done at all. But right now in 2010, that's what should be done. Now that does not mean that the individual who has a large and difficult to manage primary tumor or who has extensive metastases and a very poor performance status, should undergo nephrectomy. That's not been tested. So I recommend that if an individual comes in with poor performance status, threatening metastatic disease, and a primary tumor in place, or that primary tumor looks like it really would be beyond the pale for most urologists, that they should receive systemic therapy first. There clearly are individuals who receive systemic therapy who then have their disease cool down, their primary tumor gets smaller and become resectable, and maybe then they can undergo resection of their primary tumor if it appears appropriate. So that's the algorithm that we use off of clinical trials, and I think really is where we are right now in the absence of mature phase 3 data. Do we have any information on what fraction of patients present with metastatic disease, and of those, what fraction have asymptomatic primaries? Upfront presentation with metastatic disease is between 25 and 30%. With regards to what percentage of those individuals will have an asymptomatic primary and bottom line be good candidates for upfront nephrectomy, it's probably around a half. What fraction of patients who present, though, have symptoms from their primary? It's not super common. So of those people who present upfront who have symptomatic primaries... Of that 25 to 30%, I would say it's probably a quarter or less. The reason that that's not happening as frequently as it was perhaps in the 1970s, 1980s, is that when people start developing symptoms in their primary tumor, or they're developing any minor symptoms, the threshold for doing scanning is much, much lower. So 
the old triad of flank mass, flank pain, hematuria, in terms of the features of representing primary, really are becoming less and less common. So what do we know about in patients who do receive systemic therapy, for example, sunitinib, who have a primary intact in terms of the responses seen in the primary? So there are a couple of studies that can be looked at. The first would be the bevacizumab study that we published last year. So this study was performed on 50 patients who had primary tumors in place and metastatic clear cell renal cell carcinoma that was biopsy-proven. And the hypothesis here was that by pre-treating with systemic therapy, we would select those individuals most likely to benefit from nephrectomy. So the criteria for nephrectomy based on the immunotherapy studies suggest that people who have good performance status, a resectable primary tumor, not too much metastatic disease, really are the people that should undergo nephrectomy. But it's clear that when you then follow people for a period of time, there are those people that suddenly deteriorate rapidly. And you say, in retrospect, geez, you know, we really shouldn't have operated on that person. So what we did is we treated for eight weeks, and then we restaged people. And if they had good performance status, and they either had stable or regressing disease, or perhaps progression, but still had excellent performance status, we said, these people should undergo nephrectomy. But if they had substantial progression of their metastases or their performance status was rapidly deteriorating, not because of therapy, but because of disease, we said, here are people where we don't have strong enough therapy to change the kinetics of the disease. They should go on other systemic therapy before they undergo nephrectomy. Ultimately, six individuals did not undergo nephrectomy in that trial for that reason. When you look at the overall population of these individuals, because they were a lot of them were sent to our institution because the local urologic community felt that they couldn't tackle the primary tumor. These were pretty advanced patients. They had very large primary tumors. They actually had fairly extensive metastatic disease. Despite that, in this phase two single-arm study, so we can't draw major conclusions or comparisons, we still saw progression-free survival of 11 months and a median overall survival of close to 25 months. So with bevacizumab treatment of the primary tumor for eight weeks, we see that about 50% of the patients have some degree of shrinkage of their tumors. So we have not proven that this paradigm of pretreatment does improve the outcome of individuals overall, but it has led to a couple of studies, phase three studies, one in Europe, where the EORTC is randomizing individuals between upfront nephrectomy followed by sunitinib, so different agent, but still same concept, versus pretreatment with three cycles of sunitinib followed by nephrectomy. Another prospective study that was published by North Carolina group, Cowie et al., Kimran Rathmill is a senior author, demonstrates that probably about two-thirds to three-quarters will have some degree of shrinkage. In a retrospective analysis that our group presented at GEOASCO this year, where we looked at all comers and individuals who were on trial, off trial, and there's about 160 cases in there, we see that there's some degree of shrinkage. And again, you know, that 50-ish percent range, the average degree of shrinkage, if you look at percentage shrinkage across the board, is in the order of around 10%. And I think that's pretty true for all of the studies that we've looked at. So it's modest. And so that's why it's really not a panacea for the primary tumor in place although clearly there is a subset of individuals who have dramatic shrinkage. 
How do you think through the sequence of systemic therapy that you use in metastatic renal cell cancer? So the standard algorithm is that sunitinib, pazopinib, and bevacizumab plus interferon seem to be the de facto frontline agents of choice in individuals who have good or intermediate risk criteria. Those individuals who have poor risk criteria receive temsorolimus. Because of the proliferation of agents and the fact that we have a relative paucity of data in the second-line setting, it's really hard to say what the standard should be. We do have level 1 evidence that everolimus provides a meaningful prolongation of progression-free survival in individuals who have progressed on receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. But beyond that, it's dealer's choice. And Christopher Ryan, who presented in our educational session this year at ASCO as well, basically came up with some fundamental guiding principles. What's important is that you keep the patient healthy, you keep the patient strong, that you are aware of whether or not the first agent they receive is harming them or helping them, and that you use intelligent criteria to move on to second-line drugs. And it's not clear which drug is best for which individual patient. And this comes down to this concept of individualized medicine, where what's really more important is that you don't harm the patient with whichever drug you start with. You keep your ears and eyes open as to whether or not they're benefiting, and you move on in an intelligent and non-dogmatic manner to second or third-line agents And sometimes you have to get to the third-line agent before you really get the winner for that particular patient. And if you haven't harmed them with the first or second-line drug, then they might actually start enjoying some real prolonged progression-free survival and disease-free survival. Now, in terms of the first-line options that you mentioned, what would be the type of patient, you know, sort of generally that you might think about those three approaches, sunitinib, pazopinib, and bevinterferon? would be an individual who has a good performance status, has clear cell renal cell carcinoma, because all of those studies were done almost predominantly in individuals with clear cell renal cell carcinoma, and who does not have multiple negative risk factors, you know, including poor performance status, biochemical abnormalities like high calcium, substantial anemia, high LDH. So it would be the better actor who probably will benefit from these drugs. And then how would you choose between those three approaches? That is a very good question. What you do is you look at the toxicity profiles of each of the studies, and it's a real challenge in the absence of level one evidence, you know, which one's better than the other. There is a suggestion based on non-comparative data that pazopinib may have better toxicity profile than sunitinib, but we don't have a head-to-head comparison. So Although we have been using pazopinib for individuals in the frontline setting because of these data, we are anxiously awaiting the readout from the trial that actually was done, a phase three trial, comparing sunitinib to pazopinib to see whether or not there's a difference in tolerability between the two drugs with no loss of efficacy. What about the decision between the two TKIs and bevinterferon? There it might become more of an insurance and sort of practicality point. Some individuals don't like taking tablets. Some people can't get oral medications covered. And so bevacizumab in of itself is very well tolerated. Interferon is an agent that certainly provides sort of a negative impact on the tolerability of bevacizumab. And so it depends on whether the treating physician feels strongly about adding interferon or not. 
We do have some data suggesting that dose-reducing interferon is okay, and so those are often the guiding principles. Some people don't want to come in every two weeks for an IV medication. Others really like the idea. So what is your take right now in terms of, you know, nationally, what people are utilizing up front in this situation? It seems that sunitinib is still the dominant agent being administered. And it's interesting to see whether or not over the next 12 months we're going to see major changes in the penetration of pizopinib or bevacizumab interferon. It seems that the bevacizumab interferon combination has not gained the same type of traction that one would have expected. And I have a feeling that's just due to established practice patterns. That's actually what we've observed, and it kind of surprised me. I guess the interferon's a little bit of an issue. I mean, do you think it's reasonable to just use bevacizumab alone right up front without interferon? If you look at phase two studies where bevacizumab was used alone, the data aren't bad. There was a bevacizumab versus bevacizumab plus erlotinib study, which showed that the progression-free survival was in the 10-month range with bevacizumab alone. We do have another study, though, in people who had been on immunotherapy that was published way back in 2003, where the time to progression was only 4.8 months. So I think there's a little bit of question still in the air, and I think that lack of certainty is what's hampering interferon's acceptance. Let's talk about your cases, beginning with your 64-year-old man. So this gentleman is really representative of a number of individuals that we've seen over the past four years, who get on sunitinib and really derive benefit from the agent, but are having challenges dealing with the toxicity. So this gentleman had a nephrectomy, and then unfortunately, within a few years of having the nephrectomy, developed metastatic disease, which predominantly in the lungs and in lymph node, and was a good performance status, good prognosis patient. And was started on sunitinib four weeks on and two weeks off, as is the recommended dose schedule. What was very obvious was by the third week of drug, the patient was beginning to have substantial problems. Fatigue was getting worse. Diarrhea started getting worse. Head foot syndrome was getting worse. And the patient was really dragging into the fourth week and then started recovering in the two weeks off. This happened cycle after cycle. And, And the patient started dropping doses because just couldn't handle it anymore and came back for restaging after two months and said, you know, I really like the results you're telling me about, you know, the shrinkage of disease, but I don't know whether I can live like this. So the question is what to do from a dose adjustment perspective. So the package insert says that what you should do is go down to 37.5 milligrams and then down to 25 milligrams. And so the patient did that. And once again, what happened was the same sort of thing started happening again in the third and the fourth weeks and came back and said, well, it's a little better, but, you know, still, you know, there's those two weeks and then the recovery. So what we did is we actually changed the patient's schedule to two weeks on and one week off. And the patient was a little concerned, saying, well, you know, that's not the package insert and that might not work. And to our surprise and delight, the patient continued to have the same stabilization and slight further shrinkage, but had far fewer of the side effects because By stopping after 14 days of therapy, the normal tissue tolerance was not exceeded by the drug, and we still seem to have the anti-tumor effect that we had before. So eventually, we actually were able to raise the dose back up to 50 milligrams, two weeks on and one week off. And so the patient received the same number of pills, 28 pills, in a six-week period. 
but had much better tolerability. So we've actually looked at this. We presented a paper at GU ASCO this year asking the question of whether individuals who are on two-on and one-off versus four-on and two-off had different outcomes. And it's clear that patients who are on the two-one schedule stayed on drug longer, and we had a trend towards improved outcome in the patient population. We're expanding that now, and there's actually an interest in the community and also in the biomedical community, perhaps coming back with a trial asking the question of whether these two different schedules provide differential benefit. When you talked last time, one of the issues that came up was the question of whether or not patients end up receiving therapy with these agents, particularly sunitinib, for as long when they're treated by investigators as compared to docs in practice. And I think I heard the sentiment that maybe investigators end up being able to treat longer. Is that your impression? Absolutely, Neil. There are some data out there suggesting that the duration of treatment in the community is dramatically less. And it is mainly because of the fact that these drugs are hard to deal with sometimes. And if you have a relative paucity of patients, and you know if you're treating a lot of different diseases, learning the ins and outs of a particular therapy, especially one that's going to result in a lot of extra time required, it can be a huge problem. Do you have any sense in terms of whether or not there's a correlation between the benefit that's received from these treatments and the duration of treatment, sort of the area of the under-the-curve correlation? There are data that suggest that the greater the area under the curve, the greater the dose density, the greater the benefit. And that's been shown with sunitinib therapy. So although you want to find the balance for that, in general, it seems that more is probably better. But you have to find out how to give it without hurting the patient. How do you approach the patient who's older, 75, 80 plus? That is a real challenge. So every 75 and 80-year-old is not created the same. And there clearly are some people that age who are very robust and can receive full-dose therapy. But if we're concerned and we're concerned about the patient being fragile, we'll do two things. One is we're going to have very, very close follow-up. And the second is that, for example, with sunitinib, we may start with a slightly lower dose, but we certainly would start with a two-on, one-off schedule. And we might even see the patient after two weeks and get a sense of whether or not they're holding it together. What about serafinib in the older patient? And what are your thoughts about serafinib in general in terms of where it fits into the overall algorithm? So serafinib was the first approved agent, and it certainly demonstrates prolongation of progression-free survival compared to placebo in the second-line setting. In the first-line setting, it's been a little disappointing with regards to the data that we have. So is serafinib an alternative for individuals who are older and perhaps less robust? It certainly has its own set of side effects as well, but the fatigue may not be as severe. So it could be contemplated as an agent in that scenario. We're not talking about pizopinib, but I'd like to bring up pizopinib as an agent that does also have a better toxicity profile than sunitinib, perhaps, and may be a reasonable alternative in that population where you're concerned about toxicity. All right, let's talk about your 62-year-old woman. Right, so this person we saw last year, and um, very interesting story, and I actually showed her scan at my presentation this year in the educational session. She's a woman who comes in and, you know, the skirt stopped fitting her and her pants needed to move back her belt. 
And she just started having difficulty. She's full really early. And she went to her primary care doctor who performed a physical examination and found this huge mass in her abdomen on the left-hand side. And a CT scan was performed, and she had a huge primary tumor, which was arising from the kidney, but no metastases. Very interesting. She was seen by one of my urology colleagues, and this tumor was very necrotic, a little unusual looking, but we performed a biopsy, and it was clear cell kidney cancer, but it had sarcomatoid features, which is a very worrisome finding. And historical data with sarcomatoids suggests that the median survival, regardless of whether you have metastases or not, is only about a year. So we're very reluctant to operate on these individuals because oftentimes, you know, the old-fashioned story of, well, when you let air get to the tumor, it seems that everything goes bad. That's probably applicable to sarcomatoid because it seems that the wound-healing cytokines and growth factors can make this tumor go crazy. So what we did is we treated this individual with sunitinib therapy first. And what we saw was we saw over a six-month period a very gratifying regression, shrinkage, of that primary tumor, and it really became a shadow of its former self. Finally, about a year after treatment, she underwent nephrectomy, and the nephrectomy was uneventful. There were no wound healing issues. There were no intraoperative complications. The tumor came out nicely, and we've been delighted now. It's been nine months with follow-up scans to see no evidence of disease recurrence. So this is an example of that category. You know, when we talked before about who should undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy, although this is a primary tumor, but still, who should undergo nephrectomy? She clearly was a person where you'd really think twice about the benefit of the operation. And by pre-treating and essentially using that period to see, A, whether you could shrink the tumor, and B, whether her disease was about to explode in the rest of her body, we, I believe, benefited her by pre-treating and then performing the nephrectomy. That's an amazing case. Why don't we do your last patient, your 58-year-old woman? Okay. So this lady is really emblematic of patients that we see who come in, who've had a nephrectomy performed, and then come in. They may come into the urology department at our institution or into the medical oncology department. And that's the question, you know, say, my community doctor said that I've got a pretty high risk of recurrence here. And, you know, I'm coming to you to have you give me something that's going to decrease that risk. And as we know, in 2010, there are no approved adjuvant therapies for renal cell carcinoma. So this is a real dilemma. You have a a relatively young and fit woman who is being told that she has a 30 to 50% risk of recurrence from her disease. So what we need to do is we need to figure out whether or not the anti-angiogenic agents that are currently approved for the metastatic disease setting are useful in a patient like her. And there is a clinical trial that's currently underway and almost completed in North America. That's the ASSURE trial, randomizing individuals between one year of sunitinib, one year of serafinib, and one year of observation. And that trial hopefully will provide us insight as to which individuals would benefit from adjuvant therapy with antiangiogenic agents. The other key point to make is that we should not give this person if she chooses not to participate in the trial or is not eligible for the trial, we should not give people adjuvant therapy with the existing approved agents. We do not have data at this point that giving these therapies in the adjuvant setting is helpful. It could potentially be harmful. And we all know of people who've been on the trial who have progressed while on therapy. So we know it's not a panacea. 
Obviously, anecdotes do not make reality, and we have to wait for the completion of these trials. And all of us in the academic community are putting patients on this trial and are not giving these drugs in the absence of a trial. When do you think we might have results from this or any other adjuvant trial? It's going to be three or four years at least, unfortunately. 